And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest Radio. Hello, listeners. You're listening to Salmon Fest Radio, and you're tuning in to our fourth episode of our second season. We're your hosts, Satchel. And Dave. And we would like to start our show of celebrating Salmon by recognizing and honoring the people who have been establishing that relationship to salmon for time and memorial, the Denina and Supiak people. Later on, you'll hear from our salmon champion who exemplifies this connection and this commitment uh, wonderfully. And you'll learn about an exciting project that's entering its second year here in Alaska. Yeah, and this episode is like particularly saturated in Salmon Fest because we are actually able to sit down with Sam, who is running workshops throughout the weekend at Salmon Fest 2021 and sharing the traditional ways of smoking fish with Salmon Fest attendees. We're also, of course, going to weave in the fun tunes and sounds of Salmon Fest today. So we're going to hear from Super Saturated Sugar Strings, another Alaskan favorite. We had a great and long conversation with them at Salmon Fest, and we're going to play a clip that we especially like. And we're going to get to enjoy their tunes from on stage. So let's get this party started with a tune from Super Saturated Sugar Strings from the main stage at Salmon Fest 2021. Super Satch. That was great. Um, but before we get to their interview, I actually want to take us to our conversation with Sam Schimmel, which also happened in our backstage recording lounge. So we'll just pivot and head backstage and sink into a lovely conversation with Sam about Operation Salmon Drop and sort of the bigger themes and values that that project encompasses. Okay. I just wanted to start by having you introduce yourself. Um, my name is Sam Schimmel. I'm Kanaitse Indian and Siberian Yupik Eskimo from Kenai, Alaska. I'm the current team lead for Operation Fish Drop, which was an idea to ensure access to traditional foods for tribal peoples in urban areas. We're here today at Salmon Fest trying to do fundraising for that and trying to continue the conversation around conservation by consumption and the role that traditional means of harvesting and subsistence play in creating advocates and advocacy around salmon and other natural resources. Can you 
kind of set the scene a little bit. How are you engaging with people at Salmon Fest and having that conversation? In one of the booths here, we're smoking fish and teaching people how we as native people put up fish, how we preserve salmon and some of our teachings that go along with salmon. Can you describe the traditional way of smoking fish? My grandmother passed away when I was six years old, and so I didn't learn how she smoked fish. The person that really taught me was uh, one of my aunties, Marianne. She taught me how to smoke fish as, as we smoke fish here on the Kenai Peninsula, uh, and that's uh, to make balik, which is a kind of a hard-smoked, dried fish. And so in order to do that, what you do is you strip your fish, and uh, they're about quarter inch, half inch thick strips, and then you brine it, and then you hang it until it's glazed, and then you smoke it for about a week uh, until it's hard, and this is the way that we've smoked fish for a long time. And the reason we do this is because our fish will not go bad if it is smoked this way. You can store it for many months. It will not rot. It will not go sour. It will not grow uh, anything that will hurt you. And so this is, this is why we smoke our fish this way. One of the things that I was brought up with, one of the traditional ways of interacting with people is through gift giving, is, through in, is to invite people into our traditions and invite people into our culture. And, and, and that's really what this is about, is about showing people the intrinsic connection that our communities have with the fish that we've relied on for thousands of years and making it so that not only are we the only ones advocating for our ability to harvest and to subsist, but we have advocates outside of our indigenous communities that are doing the same. How are those conversations going? Are they new ideas for people, or are a lot of the people you're talking to already thinking about these issues? Well, I think a lot of people are already thinking about the idea of providing fish to supplement diet as a food security issue as a reality that urban populations have reduced access to traditional and subsistence foods and that programs like Operation Fish Shop uh, remediate that lack of access. What I think is much newer for a lot of people is the cultural impact that traditional foods have on families, elders, and adults. And that is that when traditional foods are present in a home, you see traditional languages and native languages being spoken more. You see native languages and their teachings being passed down from generation to generation, you see more and more transference of knowledge between generations. And that is really one of the key components of the impacts of Operation Fish Drop, which is that we're focusing on food security, but it is not food security parochial. We are also focusing very much so on the cultural impacts that programs like this have on young people. You see when young people are engaged in community and engaged with culture that there are better long-term outcomes, lower rates of addiction, lower rates of suicide, and higher rates of graduation and long-term success. And so that's really what we're trying to do through Operation Fish Drop. Who does Operation Fish Drop serve? Operation Fish Drop uh, is serving the native community in the Anchorage area. We're trying to expand to Fairbanks and other communities that are in need across the state. We're not serving only one tribe. For the last Operation Fish Drop, we had over 70 different tribes represented in the recipients. 
and we had all 13 native corporations represented as well. Where is the salmon coming from? So last year for Operation Fish Drop, that salmon came from Bristol Bay. This year a lot of it's coming from there. We're trying to diversify where it's coming from, both in this operation and the ones moving forward. Uh, but mainly, yes, it's, it's coming from Bristol Bay, and that's, that's simply because that's where the majority of soccer are harvested in Alaska. Of course, yeah. So on our way over here, we were talking about this idea that Salmon Fest really focuses on conservation and, and creating collective action around preserving salmon landscapes. But can you expand on this idea that sometimes conservation and preservation can almost be prohibitive to maintaining that connection to fish? How would you put it in your own words? Preservation can be very alienating. Uh, for instance, the preservation of marine mammals is something that we in my community of Gamble are often hit with. Uh, we're a whaling community, we're a walrus community, we are a sealing community. And you see preservation groups that don't understand the intricacies of traditional means of management or traditional ideas of catch and subsistence telling us that harvesting whales, harvesting seals, harvesting walrus is not okay. When this is something that we have done for thousands upon thousands of years. You see community members like a 16 year old four years ago who was the recipient of so much hate online from groups because he had struck a whale and because he had harvested a whale for our community. And I think that's where preservation can go wrong in a lot of ways, where it cuts off use, it cuts off interaction with land, and it fails to recognize that humans play a critical role in many, many ecosystems. Where conservation, I think, improves on that is that it recognizes that people are part of an ecosystem. It recognizes the role that we play in managing that ecosystem and managing that resource, and it recognizes the importance that that resource plays in our lives. So for instance, with salmon, you see some of the fiercest advocates on behalf of salmon are communities that rely on fish for subsistence or rely on fish for economic profit. And these are the groups that are standing up and fighting for fish alongside of preservation groups. If we move too far in the direction of shutting down fisheries, of preventing people from harvesting salmon, you're going to see a reduction in the number of people that care about fish. You're going to see a reduction in the number of people who care about conserving salmon and ensuring that the next generation of people has fish to subsist off of. So you're right, conservation is a lot more inclusive of human relationship to the land and the animals, but still there's a very traditional way of managing that interaction. Certainly. Do you have perspective and thoughts about how that management could be more inclusive of indigenous leadership and practices and, and traditional knowledge? I know that's a big question in our state maybe, in our whole nation, doesn't do enough to think about it? I think the idea is of maximum sustainable yield, which is the standard to which fishing game regulates fisheries and game, is something that has been around for a long time. Our traditional communities understood what uh, sustainable yield looked like. 
our traditional communities understood that if you stretch a net across an entire river and you leave it there for too long, maybe not next year, maybe not the year after that, but the year after that, you won't have any fish. And so our systems of management were to get enough food for our families to eat, get enough food for us to put up food for the winter, get enough food for our communities to thrive. This idea of subsistence doesn't take into account the thrivance that was held in many of our indigenous communities. And so our management has always been community first. It has always been preservation of human life and human tradition first. And I think uh, some of the things that you're seeing now are not in line with those traditional values. Mm -hmm. I, I can't speak on it, but I think that it would be very much a value add to talk to somebody from the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta about what's going on down there and about fisheries management in their areas. Uh, I'm not from there, so I can't speak on it, but I think it'd be good to have somebody from there speak about that. That's a story that I'm really interested in continuing to tell in a region that I'd like to highlight more. Operation Fish Drop is certainly putting community first. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about sort of the foundational values and what's motivating you to be part of Operation Fish Drop? So, Operation Fish Drop as an idea came about when I was sitting on the National Tribal Climate Leadership Summit's planning team. And that was a summit that was put on by the Affiliated Tribes of Northwest Indians, which is a group of different tribal communities across the West Coast who organized together to advocate on behalf of their mutual interests. While I was sitting on that planning team, uh, we began talking about food security. And bringing my Alaskan perspective to this, and I remembered in my community when hunting and fishing is bad, the USDA flies us in things like canned fish and uh, spam. And I know that these address the immediate food needs. Nobody's going to starve, but it doesn't address the larger needs that we have. And so I thought about that program and I thought about how it could be made better. I thought about the fact that if we intended to give tribal communities food aid, that that aid should be in line with their traditional diets, one, and should be culturally relevant. And so that way traditions could be continued even if those animals or fish or plants or resources were not available in that community at that time, the traditions around those could be continued within that community. And so I worked with the Wave Foundation as well as others to get fish together and bring it up to Anchorage to benefit our urban relatives. Uh, the project started really small. It was started with 500 pounds. And every meeting I would say, well, can we find money this way? Can we find money that way? Can we get a little bit more fish? Can we get a little bit more resources? What can we do to make this bigger? And it slowly grew from 500 to 1,000 to 3,000 to 5,000. And we ended up with 16,000 pounds of sockeye that we're, we were able to give out. Uh, in partnership with the Alaska Native Heritage Center as well as the South Central Foundation to uh, elders and families and community members who are really in need in the, in the urban center of Anchorage. And I remember hearing some of the audio that you took on that day and hearing the 
the voices of people who were receiving the fish and the joy and just how deeply it meant to them and their family and it was more than filling their freezers and being nourished it was it was this connection that they were then able to share with their family that they couldn't have been well certainly i i, I remember quite well a um, an elder from hooper bay i think she said that she was 84 years old and she came up and we were doing covid safe deliveries or uh, transfers which meant that somebody would pull up in their car they'd open up their trunk and you'd put the fish into their trunk and close it and they'd drive off and uh, when she pulled up she looked at us and said I'm from Hooper Bay I'm 84 years old my grandkids asked me to make them fish every day now we're going to eat fish we're going to smoke fish we're going to jar fish they're going to learn how we put up fish in Hooper Bay and so to talk about fish as just a nutritional thing, I think misses the point for our indigenous communities. There is a incredibly strong cultural component that is tied into that type of traditional food. And those traditions aren't accessed when you're not around traditional foods. Those traditions aren't passed down, they're not propagated and they're not given to our next generation. And so in conducting fish drop and projects like it, what's happening is our traditions are able to continue even if our people are not in the same places where those traditions originated from. And I think that that's really one of the most important parts about fish drop. Can you talk about what your hopes are for the future of fish drop? I think that uh, my, my goal for Operation Fish Drop and my hope for it is that we can diversify our funding, that we can use crowdsource funding to be able to ensure access to traditional foods for more and more Native Alaskans. Uh, right now we're doing crowdsource funding on Venmo. Uh, you can find us at OFD-FISH. Again, that's OFD-FISH. We're going to be coming out with a Pledgely as well as a GoFundMe and trying to really afford access to traditional foods for our Native peoples is, is really what I hope. Uh, for Fish Drop is that it continues and grows. I think that's a wonderful thing and uh, yeah I mean I know I paid $25 for my subsistence permit and I can go and I you know have caught 24 fish for myself this season and that's not that's not like a huge amount but certainly recognizing that I paid a dollar a fish essentially I would be more than willing to share that wealth to make sure that people who who need the access for so much more than maybe I need the access are able to get that. And I know that so many Alaskans feel that same way. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Thank you, Sam, that was terrific. We're gonna pivot now back to the main stage and catch more of that set from Super Saturated Sugar Stream. Snowfall 
You dance and dance and dance. Nice job. Let snow fall. Mountain falls alive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. If you like the program, you want to hear it again or hear our other episodes, you can find this wherever you find podcasts. Or if you would like more explicit directions, you can go to salmonfestradio.org. All right, let's turn around one more time and head back to that Cook and Lit Keeper recording studio, just backstage of the main stage, where we squeezed all five of the Super Saturated Sugar String members to have a cozy conversation. Hello, we are the Super Saturated Sugar Strings. My name is Kat Moore, and I'm a pianist and a guitarist, upright bassist and vocalist. We like to trade duties, and I'm going to trade it down to my bandmate. Hey, this is Kevin Worrell. I mostly play bass. I also play some guitar and, uh, and sing on some songs. This is Mariah. I play the fiddle and sing as well. My name is Cameron, and I play the drums. Hey, I'm Logan, and I play the trumpet and baritone and bass sometimes. Yeah, so we like to mix it up. <laughs> so a lot of skills between all of you. So in addition to all of that, what about um, values that bring you together or kind of what brought you together other than your love of music? Oh man, yeah, I, I would say our love of music definitely brought us together, but also our love of the style of music that we make. And um, I remember just personally my first experience playing with the Sugar Strings back in our original um, formation, which was Mariah on the violin and uh, Teresa Taylor on cello and Carlisle Watt on guitar. I just remember sitting and, and jamming and realizing that it felt like we were kind of making an emotional landscape with instruments. And so that was really amazing. And, um, and then I also remember having a lot of mutual interest and, and wanting to just you know go out and experience nature and share art with other people. So I think that that ethos has carried through the band over all the years and all the additions um, you know, with new bandmates. Uh, for me, yeah, I think our, our shared values of loving creativity and art and music and sharing that with people. What do you guys think? What, what else? I share my van with the band. <laughs> That's how I got invited in. Stuck around for the great bass lines, though. <laughs> well, I'm relatively new to the band, but I do feel a sense of, like, I mean, a shared musical style, I guess, but also there's pretty varied styles from the music that we play, but there is a mutual interest in co-writing and improv group improvisation i feel like that really there's like a cohesiveness in that where everybody's into writing stuff together and also uh being creative together and improvising together yeah i second that and uh, the magic that drew me in i've been in the band since 2014 so it's been a while now and the styles are like our backgrounds are all super different and we're even more different back then but um we all bring 
you know, different levels of like training and, and like songwriting practice and the writing, the improvisation, the composition, you know, execution of it all. Like it's all those things just like form this pretty unique palette of uh, vocabulary and language that we use to express ourselves. And, and we, it's really fun to play off each other with all these different things we bring to the table. So uh, that's what that's what originally drew me in, and, and that's what I still just like love about it now. It's we just had such a fun set, and it was like just reaffirming all that, you know. That's awesome, and yeah. So I hear that you all share uh, a passion for co-creating and for music and being together. And I'm wondering a little bit about other things that you're passionate about and weaving activism into your music, and kind of how that expresses itself through what you create? Yeah, you know, I think on the valueistic level, I can't speak for all of us, but I do feel like we do have very similar values as far as like being proponents for equality and equal rights and a sense of compassion and justice. We all express that in different ways through our writing and our playing and through life activities and, and you know, choices in that sense. But, but I feel like musically, we do tackle those topics and we tackle them in our songwriting and in the way that we express parts to, aside from lyrical writing. Like um, we have a tune called Death and Chains that's basically about ending racism. And there's a center section that's, um, there is a lyrical center section, but the whole mood of the music changes there. So like, even if you're not writing the lyrics of that part, like it feels like you can kind of still express the darkness of like, what racism is and what it you know does to our society and how it destroys our society through the music so i feel like yeah our expression there you know comes out both in songs that are topical about activistic issues but also like in the sonic mm -hmm. creation of those songs too what do y'all what do y'all think i just think the tenor of activism in in music and maybe it's just, where i'm resonating with it in my life and where where the world is maybe i've matured into this but I, i'm feeling more like more naturally leaning into very purposely writing the music, one, to grapple with the world around us, but two, also influence change. I would just note that we also play for organizations and at events that are value-based and that are, and so I think that's a, probably a really important way that we can like throw our weight and our hearts behind a cause, so. Yeah, I think also just, you know, sometimes activism is an interesting thing because when you're trying to reach across the divide, or the aisle, to put it more uh, civil, maybe. <laughs> uh, but when you're trying to reach people with different values than your own, I think a lot of it is through connection, right? So you can have a song that's like, let me tell you about this, it's super important. And then, you know, if people already have an opinion on that, they don't really want to necessarily listen to that song. So I think just by creating a sense of fun and connection with songs that are, you know, apolitical, we can then weave statements and value statements into our sets. So, you know, you're finding people when they're in a, an open mindset and like a, a place of fun and openness and excitement. And then you can kind of like, you know, share messages in that way. And then maybe they leave the set thinking, oh, I never I never thought about that. Like, maybe I'll go vote, you know, or something. And so I, I feel like there's, yeah, there's so many different ways to integrate that activism into music, whether it's the actual song or the organizations that you're working with, or just the message that you're putting forth on stage when you're not actually singing and playing too. At the end of the day, like you do want to share yeah. our values, the, the ones that we hope can help change the world for the better, but at the same time, you'd never want to polarize your audience, you know, because 
again, you can't reach someone and change a heart or mind if if you can't reach them first. And so you got to kind of keep that door open. But it is kind of fun because like working as collaborators in the Sugar Strings, like I write a lot of very activistic poetry on my own. And so it's kind of cool because I feel like a lot of the people who read that poetry maybe got to know me through the Sugar Strings and stuff too. So that's that's kind of a neat thing. So there is this like ripple effect of working together as collaborators. So even beyond the stuff that we're actually doing as a band, activistically like that connection through the band with our community you know helps each of us in our own way you know access a different audience to share that kind of that kind of activity and activism yeah i think you raised a lot of really good points if we were to play one of your songs from the set you played today on salmon fest radio which one would it be and do you want to introduce it and tell us a little bit about it oh man what do you think bandies Oh yeah, Death and Chains would be a great one. So uh, Death and Chains is a, a funky tune. That was one that we had mentioned before, you know, that's a song written about the concept of, well, not the concept, the practical approach <laughs> to the fact that we need to end racism, you know? And um, and it was written a few years back, but you know, the it's still poignant, you know, because we're still forever, you know? I mean, this country was founded on on slavery which is insane we can't undo that necessarily we can never un we can never take away our past but we can start to change the present for the better and create equality and make that our number one goal and so i think with death and chains you know that's a song um where it was inspired by a ta-nehisi coates article um and the line in the chorus is when will we drive out this cult of death and chains it was written back years ago and it was right around the time that you know the confederate flag was still flying over the capitol building in what south carolina right i think it was in south carolina they still flew the confederate flag which is insane um i could go off for a long time about that but and he wrote this article that was like you know like obviously we haven't gotten over this if we're still flying the flag of the confederate army above one of our political you know our governmental buildings and so death and chains i don't know it's kind of like a battle call to be like, hey, we cannot forget about this. No matter how much you think it is affecting you, it, it is. It's affecting everyone. And more importantly, like, if you feel like it isn't affecting you, you need to fight even more, you know, because it means you are of the absolutely privileged class that doesn't have to wake up and think about that every day because of the fact that you were born a certain color in this country. And so, um, yeah, it'd be great to share Death and Chains. It's a, it's a great tune to sing. It's a hard tune to sing, I think. A lot of passion in that tune. So yeah, maybe Death and Chains would be a, a good one to share. Hate and the fear lies carry on. The young 
We've been talking a lot about music as this unique vehicle to bring people together and an opportunity to reach people at a time when they're ready to receive yeah. a powerful message. Um, and I think Salmon Fest is a really good example of people coming together with music and community and um, to hear that message. And I know that you've been performing at Salmon Fest over the years, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your history at Salmon Fest and how you've seen this event change over the years and maybe the future that you see for this event. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, the thing that strikes me first is like, Salmon Fest stopped Pebble Mine. It did, it like actually stopped Pebble Mine. Now granted, you know, corporations are intense and, <laughs> and uh, money talks. And so we're gonna have to stop Pebble Mine again and again and again and again. But I do really think that Salmon Fest in its infancy helped to stave off that mine. And it's gonna keep coming back around because that's the nature of the world, you know? There is a lot of greed and there is a lot of uh, short-sightedness when it comes to people desiring wealth over longevity and health. But I, I, I think looking at a decade of Salmon Fest, like it has done an incredible job to bring awareness to causes and to help our state survive as long as it has you know like in with a healthy ecosystem it's going to continue to be an instrumental part of that but um i i, I feel like the first couple of years really helped to bring alaskans awareness to what was happening with bevel mine and put the kibosh on that at least once and then also just to like bring awareness to the environment here and you know what we can do to help protect it i think through like cooking like keepers work and and everybody there so yeah, I mean, for me, I feel like I didn't know very much as a transplant to Alaska. Like, you know, I was like, this place is amazing. Oh, my gosh, I love skiing. And I love, like, being awake in the midnight sun and playing music. But you don't really think about all of the ecosystems and how integrated they are and what we need to do as citizens from, like, the civic duty perspective of how to protect that and make sure that that is maintained forever. 
that's what I've seen Salmon Fest do is kind of help to educate me as somebody who wasn't born and raised here experiencing the inner workings of Alaska policymaking um, and, and knowing how to be an advocate for a healthy ecosystem here. So I'll just add on about like the history, our history at Salmon Fest. And I think I actually started playing here as a solo artist in a, with another band called Beer Money before I was even in the band. But, um, but from, from the first years, and to be to be honest, like at the time, like I was much more aware of this, a festival of this scale being in Alaska for the first time. That was what was center in my in my awareness. But getting down here, like I really got switched on to a lot more what's happening. And like I, there was, like I understood some of the things that were in the headlines. I understood about Pebble Mine, but like getting here and being in the middle of it actually really really helped me to 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 get it. And it's like near and dear to me. And my family eats salmon all year long, you know, and, and we really, really think about how to be good stewards and be um, gracious guests on the land. And I think that, so that definitely was a seed that was started here. And the other thing I'll say is that a festival of this scale would not have been possible without the incredible momentum that came from the activism. Like a festival like this could not have gotten off the ground in Alaska. It hadn't otherwise, right? So now, look, we're listening to Sarah DeRose's playing behind us. Like, something like that couldn't have happened unless a festival could have, like, got up on step. And here we are. So I think that's a testament to Alaskans, you know, because, I mean, this was a festival that Alaskans could get behind. And not just the musicians, but our, our constituents, you know? People were like, heck yeah, let's go down and listen to music and save our state. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's really what it is. And not just save it, but celebrate it, you know? And, um, and it's been really cool, like, just the diversity of this festival, like, not only, like, Kevin mentioning Sarah Droz, like, national act on the stage behind us as we talk to you here on the radio, but just hearing Bamua before and, you know, that beautiful song, like, We Love You First Alaskans, like, it's so cool to have all these different artists coming in and sharing so many different aspects of culture and, you know, have Steve Schoonmaker and all the Fisher Poets come here and share that creative art, which is directly correlated to they're living you know what I mean like I think about that and you know in that sense you know Salmon Fest aside from essentially doing like true advocacy work that has equated to change I think that you know it's been so educational and it's also just been such an amazing festival for creative expression for people who are directly tied to the land and who are directly tied to the sea and and everything that Salmon Fest is here to help protect and so it's it's really cool <laughs> and a decade strong you know i mean pandemic in there and still just going so yeah it's it's been really cool to see it grow and see it change the face of the state you know yeah thanks for doing it <laughs> thanks for having us be a part of it we love it <laughs> thanks for being here oh yeah and before we get too far off the topic of connection to land and water and salmon I would love to hear a little bit about your connection to salmon and your salmon stories and you know what kind of brings you back to this cause and um, really makes it hit home for you. I got to uh, fish in Bristol Bay for a couple of years um, and I miss it a lot. I feel really lucky to have like been able to um, get out to the specifically you know the region that um, We've been talking about this whole time here at Salmon Fest, the Pebble Mine, uh, Bristol Bay topic. There's no way to comprehend what 
like unless you actually see it. I don't know. It's I had a totally different idea of what it was actually like, but um, it is wild and fierce out there, and that you're just existing within and at the mercy of nature. You know, bringing in this amazing harvest of salmon and nothing like it. I don't know. It's it's just incredible. But um, you can also sense. You know, we, we fish in river mouths and. Uh, you can sense the delicate nature of it all. It's all held in balance, and the 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 job of you know whoever's in charge of letting making the rules how much people can take, and they're you know with the in the commercial fishing industry, you know that's just such an incredible balance that we've managed to maintain for years and years. You know, um, it's kind of weird to to be in the middle of this like phenomenon of like human management of this natural resource and to see it working over and over again. Um, we're obviously like having an effect on it, you know, that it continues to provide, you know, this amazing like food source for us all is like just kind of mind blowing. And to like change that balance in the environment at all just seems like it, it's just such a delicate thing, you know, specifically like the pebble mine, like if it were to go through, it could, you know, there's potential for it to just like destroy so much like habitat that keeps this thing in balance you know I being out there I guess the point I'm rambling but the point is that like being out there was amazing because I could feel that directly that balance point you know um and uh yeah I mean just growing up here otherwise like we all eat salmon and mm, yes we do <laughs> we, we some of us really rely on it some of us uh don't rely on it so heavily um you know, for our well-being, but it's it's something we enjoy, you know, but so much of our culture is like, you know, a lot of Alaskans really do rely on it fully, like, for their well-being, so. I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, they compare it to gold, I mean, you know, around the world, people are like, Alaska salmon, like, there's nothing like it on the east coast, west coast of the U.S., it's like, this coveted thing that is this wild, untouched thing that, but it's cool that, that you know, people are making waves to actually protect that because it is such a resource here um, as far as like natural fish habitat that is such a part of the economy and it's cool that like Bamiwa just like having more presence and awareness of like the indigenous people and how they kind of tie into the land and learning more about that I mean I, I've grown up here but just just you know, always trying to um, understand more about the connection um, with a lot of the Alaska natives and how, how important it is to them. And um, I think it's really cool that Salmon Fest is, is celebrating that by having. I hope they do that more. I hope they bring in more uh, acts like that to, to, so we can understand more about uh, the value of salmon and how to protect it. I'm a transplant to Alaska. I wasn't born here, but I moved here in the eighth grade and probably was not really into eating salmon at first, but I really love it now. And we always get uh, fish every year from my brother-in-law who's a commercial fisherman in Prince William Sound. And that's always like, I, I've not been dip netting sort of because of that, because we always get this gift of salmon from him at the end of the summer, basically. And that you know, like a lot of people, it stocks our freezer and kind of lasts us throughout the year. And 
yeah, I just love all the rituals around whether like I didn't dip net this year, but my my good high school friend who lives two doors down the road, they went down and they got a bunch of fish and we just had a party in their backyard like processing all the fish and then we grilled it up and just the uh, the connection that kind of everybody has spoken of to the land and to the natural resources is just such a gift when you know I think you know a lot of places you just yeah go to the grocery store and you buy your protein of whatever variety you're gonna get and you don't really have any connection to it and here it's just so nice that we can all have that and we only have that because of advocacy and public management of that resource because if it were left uh, without that it would probably be gone so all the more important to manage it effectively and that takes all kinds of people not just the managers but people speaking up and advocating for protection of those resources uh. How much tape do you have left? Because I can talk about salmon a lot. I grew up farming uh, in the valley, and so in the summertime we were making hay, and I got to go on a few coveted trips a year with my dad, and we would go usually in uh, you know middle or late August. We'd sneak off, and and uh, and, and those were cherished memories. Um, and when I started uh, taking my own kid out. We just really, um, I just got much, much more into it. Uh, I, I, the, the value of the experience became much more um, precious. Uh, and it seems like every year, and my bandmate's gonna test, like when the leaves start changing colors, like I turn into a bear, like I am <laughs> like, I get weird about wanting to get out in the habitat. And, you know, we just ate our first fresh red filet last week. Like, I was grateful to go dip net and get this fish and bring it home. And I was like, I remember, like, oh my God, this is what it's like when it's like not been frozen and it's fresh. And, and my 15-year-old, you know, he was like, oh, Dad, stop talking about it at the dinner table. Like, I'm like, but I have to, like, honor this incredible thing. I mean, I, I guess the thing that's, that's on my mind tonight when I'm thinking about it is just that I'm a guest, uh, but I'm also a part of that ecosystem, you know? And um, I just really want to tread that way when I'm there, you know? And so, you know, the fish are just like, yeah, this incredible point of connection to this whole world that's out there. So when I'm my, when I'm in the water, when I'm, you know, feeling the environment around me, smelling the mud, seeing others sustain themselves and their families, and then thinking about the eons of history, where so many, you know, so many creatures have subsisted, you know, alongside of humans. Um, you know, alongside of Sam, and it just, um, it's just really powerful experience. And that, so, you know, so it centers around our dinner table and around food, but like, it's really become uh, spiritual for my family and personally, so. Man, Kevin, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, ah, oh, gosh, yeah, I, I, I agree completely with 
what Kevin just said. Um, for me, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so we were close to the um, the Atlantic Ocean, but I did not grow up in a fishing family. Um, you know, there were tons of rivers and people fished a lot, but not my family. And so um, I didn't really grow up eating very much fish, but when I discovered fish, I was like, whoa, this is incredible and really loved it. And so coming up to Alaska, um, my first summer here, I was not a musician, so I fished. I went, um, not professionally, but just with my friends, and we went out, and I remember learning the ropes real quick, how to, you know, how to fillet a salmon. <laughs> I think we filleted for like seven hours straight, and then built a smokehouse and smoked for like the next day, and then canned, and it was just this wild, intense thing. And um, since I became a musician, I don't go out fishing as much, personally, but um, two of my best friends in the world, who I met here in Alaska are transplants from Michigan and, and Colorado respectively, but my friends Mark and Carol. And um, and I agree that, you know, like for me, they, they are friends who have become family. And earlier this year, um, Mark went out and caught a king, a fresh king. And he called up me and he called up my, my other friend Faye and, you know, we had a big text thread going and he said, can you guys come up, you know, come up in an hour? And we were like, dude, we're at work. I, I just, I can't, well, maybe, what about tomorrow? And I remember we had this whole long text order. He was like, you don't understand. I caught this fish this morning. We need to eat this fish right now. And so we ended up, you know, compromising. And we were like, look, you're retired. We've got jobs. And, and like, but, you know, we had this whole interaction. And um, and the next day, we ended up going up there for dinner the next day. And, and I kind of was like a a moment where I had to really look at my priorities and I was like, dude, I should have dropped everything and gone up and eaten that salmon that day. And um, because really when you think about what it is, it's so much more than, you know, sustenance. It's, it's really a gift from the environment and it's a gift that we get to share with the people that we love um, just by proxy of, you know, being able to reside in this amazing and glorious place. So yeah, I, I do think it's, um, it's truly a, a spiritual a spiritual experience, you know, communing with the environment and and um, and receiving that gift from it. So yeah, I'd have to second you there, Kevin. For those of you at home, you can't tell that Kevin made me cry over the radio. Beautiful thought, beautiful sentiment.
And we'll float Float in the ocean Float down the river Float in the creek Dear, we'll float till we can't Then we'll swim Swim in the ocean Swim down the river Swim in the creek Dear, we'll swim till we can Then we'll float Float in the ocean Float down the river Float in the creek Dear, we'll float till we can Then we'll swim Swim in the ocean Swim down the river Swim in the creek Dear, we'll swim till we can Then we'll float Hey, ready? One, two, three. We are the super saturated sugar strings, and you are listening to Salmon Fest Radio. And I would be curious to hear um, your favorite ways to prepare or share salmon. So many. I, I love to just like do a quick sear and then let it rest so that it's like nice and rare in the middle. Just salt, pepper. A little bit of olive oil in the pan before, just really hot skillet, and just sear it, flip it, let it rest, and eat it. Doesn't need anything else in my book. Mariah, tell tell them about your dad's. Well, you probably can't talk about the secret recipe, but your dad sort of has some famous. Yeah, it turns like translucent, bright red the way he cooks it. I don't know. He's like he's done it enough times to get get it down a way that he likes and it's sweet to have that kind of passed down i have my iphone is like full of how to smoke salmon notes with like pictures and all these things so that i can i can figure it out on my own and stuff but yeah um fresh though too just seared in that that pan that we we had with lisa Lisa. with some little dill sauce but um it's yeah there's so many ways to smoke a salmon so many ways to skin a cat Um, 50 ways to smoke a salmon yeah and it's all yeah i think it's yeah it's hard to do it. I can't say I've had it too many not great ways. It's like, no matter how you do it, if you put salt and sugar on it and put it in a smoker, it's like candy. I usually grill salmon. I love to grill salmon. Variety of spices. Straight on it. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah, I, I just throw it on the grill too, but uh, my favorite salmon eating moment was on the fishing boat at the end of a long season and we were just getting thrashed in the waves like for days and days like the boat's just rocking non-stop we're trying to like sleep by hanging on to our bunks like I mean imagine trying to like sleep while you're like actually gripping yourself like gripping the edges of the bunks trying to like stay in there you know um, it was just, and we were like getting no sleep anyway, and, you know, just fishing, fishing, fishing. And then we got like this calm day and we're just cruising up the coastline and, um, and my, uh, one of the crew members, um, decided he was going to make some really good salmon. So he, he had us help. He like, we chopped them up into the cubes and, uh, and then he was mixing some stuff and then he, 
gets a pot of oil really hot and uh, and it was dangerous because it was still kind of wavy. It wasn't super flat calm, but he was like, okay, your job is to just hold that on the stove. Do not let it fall off because it's like boiling oil, you know. So he, uh, he made these little salmon balls, deep fried them, and, and he like stirred up some kind of sauce out of whatever was in the boat. I mean, we this is like the end of the season. Everything came from Costco or the ocean. Um, and, uh, and oh my God, it was like some amazing salmon balls dipped in this like teriyaki something sauce. And oh God, it was just absolutely mind-blowingly amazing. I've never had it since then, so I don't know if it was just uh, the season, you know, catching up with me there, but, um, but it was, yeah, that was my favorite. <laughs> At the festival this year, the Lowdown Brass Band is coming. And those guys first started coming to Alaska in parts and pieces in a band that I, call, I have called Beard Money. And, um, and then slowly but surely more and more of them came, and then finally, like, the whole band came. And some of my favorite memories of sharing salmon are sharing salmon with them because like I have a chance to really like talk to them about what it means and like how important it is and and then like I sent I actually sent like boxes like a couple of big boxes to Chicago and like had to coordinate everybody to like meet and share and tell them to like make sure they didn't take too much you know of the you know and, and like to share it evenly and and also get it distributed around chicago before it melted you know to the multiple places so um anyhow so that's just like i guess that's a fun one of many many salmon sharing stories and uh, those guys will be here if you talk to them you should ask them about it ask about their 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 joy of salmon now Oh, can I add one more thing too? So, um, one of my favorite festivals in Alaska is actually Fishtival down in Naknek. And on one day of a Fishtival, they have they fill up the whole high school gymnasium. They do it like a bazaar, and there's just tables and tables that rims the whole perimeter of the gymnasium. Inside and out, there's like vendors on both sides, and everybody's selling smoked salmon, smoked salmon in every form possible. And um, I went down there one year, and I went back with an empty suitcase the next year and hundreds of dollars, and I was like, I'm just buying fish. I'm bringing it home. And it was so good. And I remember I met a friend who was like a park ranger out there, and, you know, we, I had, I had bought a bunch of fish at the bazaar, and I guess he had too, and we're standing outside independently just like eating fish out of mason jars, like ceviche and, and smoked fish. And we were kind of talking, and I was like, do you want some fish? He had some fish. And we were like sharing fish, and we were standing kind of close to someone's hotel room window. And they like opened the window, and we were startled. And we were like, oh, sorry, didn't mean to wake you. And he's like, no, are you eating fish? Do you need some more? I got some. And then that guy came out. And every we just had this like fish party, and it was just hilarious because we were at Fishable. And the next morning, like, you know, after a wild party night, sometimes you wake up and there's like beer cans on the floor. There were like salmon skin peels on the floor. <laughs> the room was just covered in fish and we're like trying to clean it up, you know, but like it was just wild. It was just like fish remnants everywhere. Everybody was like, covered in fish grease. <laughs> but it was one of the most delicious nights of my life. <laughs> so good. But yeah, but I agree. 50 ways to smoke a salmon. Paul Simon, the song he never wrote, but should. <laughs> Well, I'm getting awfully hungry after hearing I all know, those ways to prepare salmon. Um, so is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to share, whether it's about the band, Salmon Fest, your hopes and dreams for the future? I mean, <laughs> so, many, so many things. Coming back to Salmon Fest with this group of folks um, just reminds me, it's a good, like, milestone, you know, or... 
or mile marker uh, or lap marker. I don't know what the <laughs> like. You know, we go around the the planet. You know, uh, holy cow, Kevin can't talk today. Once a year, this happens, <laughs> and when it does, I can reflect on the rest of my life and where it's headed. And I'm just so grateful to be with this group of people and that we have been to so many of these. It's a good marker to know how much ground we've covered. And I, I am really excited about um, you know, our musical future together um, and, uh, and, and just what's, what's to come next. Like it's, we've undergone a lot of change, um, losing some key like, uh, yeah. uh, founding band members. And then that happened right as we were reforming, then there was the pandemic and that really shook things up for a while. So it's been a long time since we've really had a chance to come together. And I feel like now we're, I feel like really like, I feel like for me personally, I feel like we're coming together and, um, we're on, we're on to something big and I'm excited about it. Yeah. Amen. I'd have to second that. Like, I feel like one of the coolest things that I really appreciate about Salmon Fest this year, aside from just the joy of being able to come back and be with everything and make great music and listen to great music and, and dance to great music is for us, like this is a major way to reach a broad audience. And, and it feels really nice to be able to like introduce Cameron to all of our listeners and to like be able to, you know, cause Carlisle and Teresa moved down to Texas and it felt really nice tonight to be able to let everybody know they're doing good. Cause you know, I think people were wondering and, and so it's really cool to just be able to have like a venue to be like, Hey, this is what's up with our life and everybody's great. And this is our new friend and, <laughs> and just, yeah, it's a cool way to share. And, and, um, I'm just excited to sing songs around a fire and write some new songs in the downtime this weekend and do a lot of cartwheels in the grass. This is a pretty special year, I think. Yeah, just figuring figuring out how to do things again. It's yeah, so it feels especially cool to be here and playing on the the new stage that Salmon Fest has. And, yeah, everybody's got the feels this Salmon Fest. Yeah, I don't know. Just uh, yeah, grateful to be here. Fun weekend of music and hanging with friends. This is always like a a musical reunion of sorts you know you get to see a lot of people from other bands you might not get to see the rest of the year so it's always an awesome time so thanks for having us thanks so much for doing this all these years and doing it virtually last year so that we had a way to connect in a time when we needed it more than ever too i think you know being here this year really reminds us of you know what a gift even that was mm -hmm. but it's a it's like a gift exponentially to be here now together. So thanks for talking to us and thanks for having us. <laughs> thanks for being here. seemed to him a gem His smile and swagger drew him in He never seen her there before He never let her go, he swore
She's the kind of girl who could always choose. She said she finally found the one. Her heart no longer had to run. I knew her truth straight from a lie. I knew right then he was a guy. He was the apple of her eye. A heart affixed unto his own. With all his love to her, he shone all across his hours. Through sun and showers, fingers and dice. All of us not our race. They hold us love of all the world and smile. But you for all that many miles. All right, thank you, Super Saturated Trigger Strings. That was our fourth episode of Salmon Fest Radio. Can we call that band S Cube? Sugar Cube, because they have four S's. And they're all sweet, and then you'd have Sugar Cube. Ah, uh, sugar cubed. Uh, <laughs> this uh, this episode was very Anchorage centric. We've got our like a a various well established and loved Anchorage band, and we talked about Operation Salmon Drop, which is serving Indigenous elders and peoples of Anchorage. So yeah, we want to thank more than just our Anchorage salmon lovers. We want to thank. Pastor Tim and KBBI for helping us record, Master giving us technical support for all the Salmon Fest radio operations that go down over here. And Cook Inlet Keeper for all the love and care that they provide in giving us a home to broadcast from and supporting this program since its inception. Absolutely. And of course, the Salmon Fest team, which organizes the festival that makes this broadcast possible. And of course, we want to thank our featured guests, Sam Schimmel and Project Salmon Drop, as well as Super Saturated Sugar Strings. And last but not least, we want to thank our irreplaceable producer and editor and sound engineer, etc., 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 Kira Hardy, for making this show all come together. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to hear more, you can find this podcast wherever you find your podcast or go to salmontestradio.com. We're your hosts, Satchel and Dave, and you're listening to Salmon Salmon Fest Fest Radio. Radio.